Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you be with us this morning as we go through this next section in Acts, as we prepare for um, the centerpiece or a centerpiece of Acts, um, Paul's sermon to the Greeks in Athens. We pray that you give us wisdom this morning as we discuss um, big topics and how do we uh, engage a culture that is not new with the gospel. I pray that each of our hearts would be warmed by the beauty of Jesus and the, the supremacy of his kingship over all of creation. I pray that you give us wisdom in how we discuss these things this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 17. Marching toward uh, Paul's sermon on uh, Mars Hill. Starting in verse 16. And we find Paul in Athens. How did he get here? What drove him yet walking? Very good. How did he get here? What drove him here? He did not drive. No. What events, circumstances pushed him to Athens? Where was he probably headed anyway when he landed in Macedonia? What was the what was the what was the goal that a lot of scholars think? Do you remember? He was on the big road, the Ignatian Way, uh, and it led kind of around Greece and went downward to, pointed to, uh, Rome, which was across the sea from the Grecian Peninsula over to the Italian Peninsula. And so the, the many scholars think that he was going around Macedonia was going to head over to Rome. That was the idea. He's nowhere near there now. Uh, he has uh, left... <clears throat> he has left uh, the uh, Ignatian Way. He went to Berea. Why did he go to Berea? What went on? Well, he almost got stoned, and so it forced him to leave. Kind of, kind of a he still feeling the effects of having been beaten with rods in Philippi. Uh, he goes to Thessalonica. There's an uprising of the Jewish leadership there. Drives him to Berea, and the Bereans were more noble than the rabble in Thessalonica, and so the guys in Thessalonica go down to Berea. They stir up all kinds of trouble for Paul there. And so Paul is whisked away out of Berea by some brothers in Berea, uh, and, they, and they go to Athens, which I, I consulted a map. I do that on occasion because this is a very geographical, intricate book, and I really wish I could display for you. But in my head, I'm seeing a huge distance from Berea to um, to Athens, and it's at the very bottom of the peninsula. Berea is at the, kind of at the top or mid midway down. Um, so you've got just a lot of uh, travel time that he had to do, and he's throwing these guys off of where he's supposed to be. They're thinking he's going to go around. He's going down south. It's a big mystery kind of thing going on. So he's in Athens. He went to Athens. Silas and Timothy do not go to Athens, um, and. He's in Athens alone. He's in Athens alone, waiting on these guys. He'd sent word to come, come to me in Athens. So, um, you know, when you're knocked off your, your sure trajectory to Rome, 
and you're in Athens by yourself, might as well take in a little sightseeing, right? Here he is, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What do you think of when you think of Athens? What's the... Pantheon. The Parthenon. Pantheon. The, the, the Parthenon, I think, is, is the... It's one of the two. I don't remember. I think it's a Parthenon. And, and what else do you think? What is, the, what is the, the big sense of the city? Old. It's got all the... Old. Poly Very old. Polytheism. Why do you say that? All the Greek gods. All the Greek gods, of, the center of... The Greek mythology. Greek mythologies. Big there. It's a center of culture. It's a center of art that is reflective of the polytheistic idea. What else do you think of when you think of Athens? Philosophy. The Olympics. The philosophy. What, why? Well, it mentions a couple of them. It mentions a couple of them, kind of pulls that out. We didn't get there yet, but thanks for reading ahead. Um, what, 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 what do you think? I read the Bible before. I was just so excited. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, who in particular do you think of when you think of Athens? Like Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle, and Socrates. And Socrates, exactly. There were there were those that the trifecta of, of Greek philosophy there. Socrates actually was uh, was put to death in Athens. He was a native of Athens. Plato was a native of Athens. Aristotle adopted Athens. The two philosophies we see here, the Stoics and the Epicureans, both of their uh, fountains of thought. Uh, adopted Athens as a home place. It's a very huge, as you think of Athens, you think of art, culture, um, intellectual thought that influences an empire. Uh, Athens, very old city. Uh, been, it, 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 at this time, had been around since, the, I think, the fourth century BC. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's believed to have been continuously inhabited at the same site since the fourth century BC. Uh, in 1300 BC, it was a fortified citadel with a palace and a kind of a cult sanctuary to Aphrodite, so it was very, very monarchy-based. Athens is also known as kind of the cradle of democracy. They started that kind of political idea that all citizens have an equal vote kind of thing. Um, and so you see a, a shift in the city from the monarchy, the focus on the citadel, to what's known uh, as the marketplace, where there, everybody has a voice here. The marketplace that's used here, the word for that here, is not, um, is not a, um, just about buying, it's not like the, 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 what do you call it, the farmer's market here. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about just commerce, although that was there. They're talking about a place where people came together to share ideas, political, Philosophical, artistic, all of that stuff was there, and, and it was just get a platform, stand up and start talking, and people would listen. And it was a, an exchange of ideas uh, there. It was called the Agora, and interestingly enough, it was previously a burial site, and they built a marketplace. So Stephen King had a really good time with the whole idea of Athens. So that, that's where they would go to 
to have a cultural center of, of, uh, of the city. Um, at this point in time, Athens was a relic of its former glory, 4th century BC is really whenever it hit its zenith. Uh, but it was still considered to be the center of culture, literature, sculpture, intellectual thought. Um, Rome left Athens as a free and allied city. So it was able to carry on its own government, it had its own autonomy, uh, and, and we see a flavor of that in Luke's account. So we think of the Parthenon as this great architectural achievement, this icon of, 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 of greatness and, and, and design and, and beauty. Um, what was its function? Yes. Not now. I mean, I think they have a freeway run through it now. I think at this time it was a barracks. Okay. What had it been? Uh, temple, church, mosque. Uh, torn down, rebuilt. Probably not a mosque at this not time, at this though. Time, no. Probably not a church at this time either. <laughs> but a temple. There's a lot of stuff that happened. Yeah. So it's a te- mainly a temple by this time. Right, and there's another temple that's that's uh, that's in Athens. Uh, uh, how do you say this? The Hephaestion Temple that overlooked the the marketplace. It's the most well-preserved temple that they have there. And I probably butchered the name, but anyway, it's perfectly preserved uh, uh, temple of the era. But again, it's a temple. We we think of this stuff as art. We think of it as um, you know this beauty, this culture, this all this stuff. What does Paul see? He sees idols, right? This is the water these fish swim in. This is all they know. This is the worldview. A a polytheistic culture, um, everything has some association with a god. It's everywhere. And Paul the Jew grew up in swam in the waters of the first and second commandments, right? So when, the, so when the New Testament says he was provoked, um, this is not art to him. It, he may have said, hey, this is beautiful aesthetically, stamp of the image of God and their creativity, but its use is one of absolute monument to the rebellion of humanity against her creator, his creator. Right? This is what he sees. Um, I, I imagine that the words of Isaiah were ringing in his ears in Isaiah 2.8. He says, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what, they, uh, what their own fingers have made. Paul is provoked here when he sees this. And he's provoked by a willing deception. He writes in Romans 2, they know, or Romans 1, they know God. He's, he is stamped on creation. They know His eternal attributes. They know His eternal power. They know He's going to judge them. And yet they willingly enter into deception to suppress the truth that they know is there. This is, this is the thought going on. He says, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice uh, they offer to demons and not to God... And I don't want you to be a participant with demons in 1 Corinthians 10, 20. The Greek here that's used, that we translate provoked in the ESV. Others translate it a little differently. It's the Greek word paroxino, uh, where we get the word paroxysm. 
That's where I got twitch in my right eye. You know, you start... That, so mad, you can't stand it. The word here is he's furious. Now, I've always read this to be, oh, he's moved. Oh, it's such a... Oh, Paul, I feel your pastor's heart doing... No, he's mad. How dare you defy the living God with worship of these demons? But it's Greek culture, Paul. Come on. Get a little civil high life in you. What's up with you? A thing of beauty here was not a joy forever to Paul. All right. So on his break, on his holiday, what does he do? What does he do? He starts in the synagogue. Isn't that where he always starts? When there is one. When there is one. And what's he doing in the synagogue? Reasoning with reason. Reasoning from what? From the scriptures. They have a common connection point, right? We've talked about this before. He goes to the synagogue where there are God-fearing uh, Greeks and there are Jews there. They have a common connection reasoning from the scripture. Our ultimate authority is the word of God. Let's go there and work from there. What is he going to do when he gets out in the city? Have they heard of Isaiah in Athens? Do they know the words of, of, uh, of, of Hosea? <laughs> do they know? Have they heard of Jesus here? There's no connection. Reasoning with the Jews is one thing. We talked about how he may have done that. The, the Isaiah 52, 53, that section, doing a lot of that. What's he going to do here? How is he going to approach this? But he's out there. He gets on a platform. He starts reasoning with them in the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. He reasoned with them every day. And it says with anyone who would listen? Um, all right. So people are assembling here to hear, judge, and debate thoughts. And Paul's up there with a platform being heard. All right, look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said... What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. We're not the only one recognizing there may be a disconnect here. They recognize a disconnect. These are strange things. But they're open. Uh, but they're open. And there's a, <laughs> it's interesting, you get to verse 21, they always want some new thing. And so that, that um, generally that was seen at the time, it's kind of proverbial for the this, for this, this city, at the time that was seen to be a weakness in Athens, that they're always seeking some new thing. Here it provides a platform for him for the gospel. Luke mentions the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers by name here. These are the most prominent schools at the time uh, in, in Athens and, and really over, over the empire. 
two ways, two worldviews, um, basically. And they're rival schools of thought at that time. Both are materialists, which, you know, has no effect on us today, of course. Both were materialists and taught that only physical objects were real. And the Stoics uh, kind of flowed from a school by a guy named Zeno. His mother loved him. He na she named him <laughs> Zeno. And so he was, um, uh, was a philosopher 400 B.C., that era. And, and he taught that matter, all, everything was matter, but he took a very broad definition of matter. Matter to Zeno, incidentally, whether they got the name Stoics from Zeno, they didn't name it after, they didn't call themselves Zenoists, because who is going to follow that? So they, they called themselves Stoics because he taught from, Stoa meant porch, uh, and he taught from the painted porch, so they called themselves Stoics off of that. Anyway, just for your next party. Um, Zeno took a very wide view of what matter actually was. He thought that the soul was a very fine matter, whereas dirt and rocks were very coarse matter, but it was all part and parcel of the same stuff. Um, everything uh, was bound together by a piece of the world soul. See so this highbrow Greek philosophy that at its very core is pantheism. There's a little bit of God in each of us. It's so foreign to us today. This pantheistic God rules by natural law. So you have everything happening by law. The way it's supposed to be. The way it has to be. The only way it can be. It happens by natural law. So the Stoics took a very fatalistic view of life. Whatever will be, will be. Kesara, sara. I need to be good with that. Right? And this has a profound effect on the way they view and sought to live. They sought to be resigned to their fate. It's the will of natural law. It's the will of the world soul. It's part of just the way it is. I can't fight it. It's who I am. It's who we are. So my whole life's goal is to be at peace with my fate. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is, is matter. The cosmos, yes. So um, their ethic, and, and I'm pulling from John Frame here, their ethic was one of learning to want what one gets rather than of getting what one wants. Okay? <laughs> want what one gets. I think, I think uh, somebody... A, you get the flu, you just got to want is, it. You gotta, oh, I got to own the flu. Um, well, if someone said that from the pulpit, you would probably be like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That sounds like contentment. Yeah. It's just we're talking about Stoics right now, so we can make lunch. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. Um, there is a difference, though, in, in a uh, fatalistic view and a thankfulness for what God has brought and being thankful through it. Don't you think? Yeah, oh, I do. Okay, good. I'm glad. Uh, so... They have this whole idea of just being, um, seeking to want whatever happens rather than uh, seeking to get what they want, whatever. They believed 
that it was a duty to be involved in the politics uh, and, and in, involved in public, in public life. They taught, like all Greek thinkers, that one should live according to reason, which is according to nature. And, and they also held to this idea of a universal brotherhood, completely foreign to us, a universal brotherhood from which their morality flowed. Stoics are marked by strong spiritual pride. And they resign themselves to whatever gods may be. So John Frame asks the question, how do you move from the facts of nature to ethical obligations? How does the fact that the sun rises and sets cause me to live virtuously? What, what's the standard? If everything is, is matter and motion, how am I to live how is that causing me to live ethically? What, what basis do I have? And that's a valid question. I think it's a valid question for anybody who holds to a naturalistic worldview. By what standard do you judge what is good, right, and true? What is beauty? How do you judge those things based on... Exactly. Exactly. So they're fatalistic. They're prideful. They seek to be at peace with whatever happens. In contrast to this, the Epicureans, who oddly enough were fountained, had, had their, the head of their school was Epicurus, um, believed that, uh, were also materialists, and they took their materialism a little further than the Stoics. The Stoics believed in life after death, but it was the world soul that survived, right? So it was just that little piece of God in you that survived. The Epicureans said, no, you're, you're going to be dust. There's nothing after this. And so all of life consisted of elements that collided together. Atoms that collided together. And they were weighted differently. And they all fell in these parallel lines throughout the universe. And every now and then, just on a whim, they'd collide. And that's the curious thing. What causes them to collide? Parallel. What's the, what's the unique thing about parallel lines? They never, they never intersect. And yet, Epicurus taught that every now and then they get on a wild hair and they collide. And when they collided, these elements, these atoms, they would form objects. And that permeates everything. And from that, Epicurus took the view of uh, what we've now come to uh, call libertarian free will. The uncaused decision-making that humanity can do. He was really the first philosopher to posit that idea that we, that we have recorded. I, I, probably some guys before that, but he was the one that really pushed that, uh, that we have on record. Um, and he called it kind of an uncaused swerve, that these, the swerve. And it, it infected, infected, it also, um, it also had application with virtue. Virtue was matter. Virtue was a material thing. An ethical decision is a material thing. And you decide <clears throat> with your libertarian free will, based on the swerve of the atoms in you, to be um, kind. All of those virtuous elements resided in the human mind, the material mind. And, and they would just kind of do random things, and that would cause you to be um, whatever virtuous thing you'd want. Exactly. But they argued that that made man responsible. 
because you're freely choosing, it made you, and a lot of theologians have taken this view. Uh, Pelagius, uh, Molina, we get Molinism from that if you ever studied that. Uh, um, Arminius had this view of random acts of human freedom. That, that's kind of the, that's where those guys are pulling that from. Not necessarily that they believe the atoms collided, but, but that the libertarian free will was a basis for uh, our accountability, our, our, um, our responsibility for our choices. Libertarian free will um, also uh, is one of the big founding ideas behind Greg Boyd and the open theists. You know, God's making choices, he's getting better. Um, he can't know the future, but, but he learns really well about what might be. So John Frame asked the idea, uh, asked the question, how does the random swerving of atoms in my body make my acts morally responsible? Interesting. How, I mean, isn't that something happening to me? If I'm walking this way and an atom just gets a torque in it and I, and I have to go and I feel like I need to rob a bank. <clears throat> How am I responsible for that? That's something that happened to me. If my brain chemistry is a certain way, that's something that happens to me. How am I responsible for that? It's, it's all, it, there's nothing new. It's always been here, these ideas. They've always been here. We dress them up. The chemical imbalance happened to me, Nothing's new. nothing is new. Epicurus' ethic is that we should avoid pain and seek pleasure, which in his view is the absence of pain. While this later spiraled into kind of a debauchery kind of thing, you know, the Epicureans, pardon me, can you point me to the vomitorium? Because they wanted to eat more, you know, keep experiencing and pleasure and whatever, and so they'd throw up and come back and eat. You know, it's kind of a... Brazilian restaurant gone horribly wrong, so uh, they would do that stuff all the time. While that later spiraled into debauchery, Epicurus, uh, Epicurus idolized the quiet and tranquil life that was free of pain as the ideal pleasure. That was his, that was his view, that was his basis, but it did, it did shift. This is where we get the idea of hedonism. You've heard that term. Pleasure, no pain. And it's from the Greek word meaning pleasure. <clears throat> if this is the basis of your worldview, pleasure, no pain, why would you ever give your life for somebody? What, what would ever be logically consistent with that worldview to lay down your life for somebody else? How could, how could you justify virtue? <clears throat> Without a personal God which Epicurus denies, how can you account for any basis for what ought to be? How do, we, how do we know what we ought to do based on matter, motion, and chance? All right. However the Stoics and Epicureans differed, they agreed on one thing. Paul, this Jew from Tarsus, was spouting things that could not appeal to reasonable people. What do they call him? Babbler. A babbler. Now, even in English, that doesn't sound like a compliment. <laughs> in the Greek, it literally means seed speaker. And the idea here is that there's this bird indiscriminately picking up seed and shooting out these pieces of 
wisdom ideas that he's gathered together and tried to look and tried to look uh, intelligent and wise. <laughs> this guy's cobbled together a bunch of stuff and he's trying to act like a philosopher. We know better. <clears throat> the images, uh, the image of this, this common bird is kind of where they went. They also accused him of, of talking about foreign gods. Now, of course, he talked about Jesus. I mean, it says Jesus and the resurrection. But what may not be apparent in the English translation is that Greek <clears throat> for resurrection here is Anastasius who was a female goddess. And so they're, they're accusing Paul of teaching foreign gods and ironically accusing him of being a polytheist in doing so. Uh, I think an idea that he will disabuse them of whenever he gets up to speak. So the Epicureans did not believe in life after death. Live it up now, this is it. And the Stoics only believe in the spark of the world's soul that survived after death. They certainly didn't believe in the bodily resurrection that Paul was preaching in Athens. They think of him as a polytheist. That's their worldview. Everything is forced into that grid. And when he begins speaking, he's going to correct that for them in verse 22. So here we are. One of the things that I think, he, as we're moving toward this, um, this sermon that he gives on Mars Hill... One of the things that you see Luke doing here is, is, is painting this whole scene in the, in the shadow of Socrates. Because what had happened to Socrates was he was accused of preaching foreign deities. He was accused of corrupting the youth. And so Luke is pointing out, they're accusing Paul of the same thing here. This is not just a jaunt through the park. This could be serious. And so... Um, it's an interesting de debate among scholars what's going on here. They're hauling him off to Mars Hill. Well, Mars Hill has two possible meanings. One is, it's a hill. <laughs> the other is, it was the name of a, a, a judicial body carried way back that would do civil and, and, and criminal matters. That, that they, they held court on Mars Hill. And um, at, by this time, though, they had moved to a, 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 another kind of royal stoa or whatever, royal porch. But they kept the name, and they were, the body was referred to as the Areopagus. Um, it's kind of like the way we use Wall Street. It's not mostly a geographic reference for, for many of us. I mean, most of the time we use it, it's not pointing to that actual location in New York. It's the idea of investment bankers and all that kind of stuff. It's the same thing here. Um, so they're debating whether or not he actually got up on a hill and preached or whether he was before a court to give a defense for, for what he was saying. The court here, the Areopagus, also had jurisdiction over religious thought. Who got to speak in town? If it was something that was subversive, they shut it down. If it was something that, that you know, like they did with Socrates. So it, it, was, um, it was important. It was a little bit more significant than just an opportunity to speak. But, um, but it wasn't because he was brought up on formal charges. So, I mean, because he leaves freely after he's done. I mean, he's just giving a defense for, for what, he's, what he's talking about. All right. 
So here we have, um, here we have in verse 34 also, one of Paul's converts was a member of the Areopagus um, in, uh, later on. So we, it, it kind of fits that whole pattern that we see throughout Acts of Paul appearing before leading magisterial bodies wherever he went. All right. Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now if you're running around trying to hear of something and tell something new, what are you doing? Given, the, given that they called Paul a, a seed <clears throat> spitter, eater, whatever, babbler, what, what are they doing? Exactly that. Exactly that. They're running around getting pieces of information because they want to stand up. They're on their iPhones. <clears throat> they, they, had, they passed a law where they could not ride their chariots and talk to one another about new, some new thing. Distracted chariot riders. Um, you have here this indictment by Luke that what they're calling Paul, they're doing. That's where they live. And yet, uh, one of their own historians uh, uh, chastised the Athenians for running around and asking if there was any fresh news in a day when Philip of Macedon was rising to power and the time called for deeds, not words, right? And, and yet they were sitting and running around, what's new, what's new, hey, what's new with you? What's... And yet this gives Paul a great opportunity for sharing the gospel. He's not according to plan here. This wasn't on the agenda for Paul's missionary journey. He was supposed to be in Rome. He was heading to Rome. And yet here he is, by himself, in the center of Greco-Roman culture, being provoked in his heart by what he sees uh, of Greeks glorifying the creature rather than the creator. And that's the stage for the sermon on Mars Hill that we will get to next week. So here's my plan on that. I want to go through the text, and then I want to talk about what he does here to relate to uh, pagans who have no concept. I mean, this is not synagogue talk. What he does is very different from what he does in the synagogues. We've seen some of those sermons about how to relate to Jews. So I want to think through, what is he doing there? How is he doing that? Can we do that today? Because, frankly, we're... Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? It's a circle. We're right back to what is truth. That's our culture. That's where we are. We have a materialistic worldview that believes some spark of divinity in everybody or we're all just a bunch of dust. We have a culture that says we're responsible by our free choices, but not that choice because, you know, that's my chemical whatever. That's where we live. This isn't new. And I'm thankful that God 
recorded this for us to let us know that we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think we've never faced this before as a church. I'm like, no, faced it every century, really. I mean, it's the same stuff. The heart of man is the same. We like our sin, and we seek ways to suppress the truth that will be judged for it. So enter Paul into Athens. Any questions? The uh, or whatever? Yes. You said that there were a group of leaders that chose who can't speak and who can't speak in the area? They kind of monitor that, yeah. Okay, are they like the group of leaders? Are they leading philosophers or are they Romans? They're Greeks because remember the Romans had given Athens complete carte blanche rule over their own place. Oh, okay. They maintained their own and they were democratic. So that means every, everybody had a voice. And so they would monitor, though, from a, I guess, democratically elected body. I don't know how, exactly how that worked. But they would monitor who was speaking. And if it was something new or something that might be subversive to their society, they would shut it down. So that's kind of the idea that, that some scholars believe is going. And now, the other side of that is some say, no, he just got up on a hill and started talking. And, they were just, and, and that's completely possible, too. But it seems from the text to indicate that there was a body that he was pulled in front of, some kind of tribunal he was pulled in front of for some reason. I don't think it was criminal charges. I don't think there's nothing formal that they're charging him, but there's just this call to give an account for what you're saying. These guys say you're a babbler. We want to hear about these new things because that's our thing. So there's just all of that to see if it's something that, you know. But it, probably. Leaders and everyone else, hey, we want to hear what this guy Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly not the it's certainly not the the Stoics and the Epicureans of the day. What Paul's doing is much different. I was just going to say, it seems like um, that at least some of the leaders might have been involved because in verse nineteen it says they took hold of him and took him to right. the Areopagus, and yeah. so it was kind of this idea of I mean maybe it wasn't you know complete manhandling, but it was. You're they, coming with us. They were saying, "Come, right. come willingly." Right, and so. I mean, so there's his free will, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's some there's some element of civic authority um, involved. That's my view, but others would disagree. I think it's interesting that as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, he doesn't just sit around and do sightseeing. Yeah. He, he's he's always he's always ready. He is. He is. All right, anything else? Any questions on philosophies of uh, the, the Athenian day? With the Epicureans, I'd always associated the, the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, with the Epicureans. Is that historical? That's... Um, I, I cross-referenced it, but it didn't, it didn't seem like the biblical passages made that connection. What's that? It was a battle thing, wasn't it? That sounds like a paraphrase. It was, that, I mean, it was in 300. <laughs> 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 that has to be history. I mean... <laughs> I mean is that correct, though? I, I did think that was like a battle thing. <laughs> it, it may be. I don't know the origin, origin of that. I, I, you know, I think... Um, Were they more like YOLO culture? A YOLO culture? <laughs> well, kind of, kind of, Some of them. I mean, it's... Kind of Live for today, tomorrow you die. You don't have anything to live for after that. Yes. 
Uh, I mean, that's certainly the, the thrust you get from their, I don't know if that exact phrase came. I, I do seem to remember there being some kind of biblical statement to that. I'm trying to remember if it was in... Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. You know, and he's cross-referencing it to Isaiah. Right. But it doesn't really cite, oh, the Epicureans said Yeah, no, I, I seem to remember that from Ecclesiastes, but... It's actually a verse in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15.32. Okay, there it is. <laughs> you know, I think it'd be fun, and this is just for free, I think it'd be fun to go through Ecclesiastes from a philosophical school idea and see it's how vanity, it, 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 it isn't it though <laughs> I mean isn't that where all this leads yeah um, anyway alright any other questions comments fruit to be thrown it's 10.06 late <laughs> what it's not 10.20 I don't know what to do <laughs> alright well maybe you can talk after after class to actually to each other <laughs> uh, let's go ahead for the <laughs> I'm going to pray. Okay. Father, thank you that you haven't left us ignorant of how to approach a culture that rejects you and how to share the gospel faithfully. I pray, Lord, that we, um, that we do this well, that we learn from what you've given us think through how to speak clearly, um, persuasively, and succinctly, knowing that our faithfulness does not dictate somebody else's response, but that comes from your hand, that your spirit moves and changes hearts, and that we are called to be faithful regardless of the consequences. And so we thank you for heroes. We thank you for... Um, uh, giving us the story of Paul and what he does in Athens. I pray that uh, this week we will be thinking through this sermon from Paul in Acts 17 and how we would um, imitate him as he uh, declares the beauties of Jesus, the judgment to come and the forgiveness that can only be found in him. I pray that that affects us, that it moves us to love one another as unto Him, to submit to one another as unto Christ, to look for ways to serve one another. And we certainly have plenty of opportunity to do that within our own class these days. And so we, we lift up those in our class who are hurting, who are going through um, difficult times. Would you give us hearts that would, um, and, and wisdom, that would allow us to uh, serve them well, to point them to Christ, to be an encouragement um, through anxious times. Be with us in the next sermon, uh, the next service, <laughs> and uh, help us to see Jesus glorified in it, that He is sufficient for us, and that Your Word um, that you have exalted as high as your own name is sufficient for us as our authority. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.